Well, you get down the fiddle and you get down the bow. Kick off your shoes and you throw them on the floor. Dance in the kitchen till the morning light. Louisiana Saturday night. Hutchinson is a, um, what, what would be, you consider your, your, what's your title, Mr. Hutchinson? Um, well, right now I'm a, a Presbyterian uh, ministerial candidate, so I'm not currently serving okay. a church anywhere ordained yet. I'm actually in the middle of that process. But in the meantime, I've been serving as an interim pastor for a church in Dayton, Tennessee, and I've served some other churches as an interim minister in the past as well. Okay, and how would you like? Would you like to be called Mike, Michael? Um, you know, most everybody just calls me Hutch, so y'all can feel free okay. to do the same. All right, Hutch. Like um, welcome to the show, and uh, I appreciate you coming on and being patient with us and letting us uh, delve into your world and um, hopefully give some um, insight to our listeners. And because uh, we always like to have opposing views on, and um, sure. you can always learn something from somebody. Yeah. That's the way I look at it. Um, I'm absolutely you know, a very open-minded individual. So would you like to tell us um, a little bit, uh, you know, where you're from, your background and everything? And... Uh, yeah. So I was I was born and raised in South Carolina, um, although I am one of those rare South Carolinians that's a Georgia Bulldogs fan. I hope you won't hold that against me. And uh, go, Tigers. go Tigers. Congratulations uh, on that natty. That's thank, a big deal, thank, man. Thank you. We, we, oh, my goodness. We needed it. It's been a, a long drought. Yes. I understand. It's been a long drought in Georgia, too. <laughs> Look, I'd have just been happy with beating Alabama. I wouldn't even right. need it at the championship, to be honest with you. But hey, yeah, that's, a, that's no just land so, Well, Yeah, I was raised in South Carolina. Um, I lived there most of my life, except for the time that I was in the Army. Um, and then got out, moved back to the Charlotte, North Carolina area. That's where I met my wife. Uh, we got married um, nine and a half years ago. And so uh, about five years or so ago, we wound up moving to Chattanooga, Tennessee uh, for her work. And that's um, that's kind of how we landed where we are right now. Oh, okay. Well, first of all, thank you for your service. And um, I, I'm also a, I'm a veteran. I'm an I'm old jarhead. Uh, oh, wow. So don't hold uh, that against me. Don't hold that against jarhead. You're just <laughs> batting a thousand right now. I was about to say, don't hold that against me. I won't. I, uh, I've got a brother-in-law that's a Marine Corps veteran, and I, I love my Marines, good men all. So at least all the ones I've met, anyway. Well, yeah, that's that's kind of like my, uh, you know, my wife. I'm always giving other services a hard time. I was like, we yeah. do that though. I said, you know, it's, it's kind of like family. Like I can talk about my family, and they can talk about me, but no one else can. Yeah. Kinda Absolutely deal. right. 
<laughs> so we always give each other a hard time. But I love it. And, I, and the fastest way in the world to get a guy from the Marine Corps and a guy from the Army to, to agree is to put a sailor in the room. <laughs> oh, absolutely. <laughs> I was just about to say truth. that. <laughs> I am the hardest on the squid. So, yeah. They, yeah them, are the, them are the chair force. Oh yeah, yeah. Oh. they're barely military. <laughs> yeah, I, my uh, my pastor just uh, graduated from the officers training uh, stuff for the Air Force, or he's a chaplain there now. And I uh, I gave him a hard time about it. I said, you know, I I've heard that uh, you know it's a really bad day in the Air Force when you guys miss your uh, three o'clock tea time. <laughs> so it's that's not far off. I don't know if you've ever been to. I know we're getting off topic, but um, we did some training in Arizona one time. Um, Basically, we were looking for uh, drug mules coming across the border. So on our off time, they stuck us in an Air Force BEQ, which is a um, bachelor's quarters, for those of you that don't know. Oh, yeah, that's like a five-star hotel. Oh, look, we had, it was like a hotel, exactly. It was me and another Marine in a room, looked like a hotel. And when we came back after breakfast, that's a whole other story, our beds were made. Um, they, like, someone came in and picked up the room and made everything up. <laughs> That's I'm like, awesome. what in the I knew world? I joined the wrong branch of service. I was like, goodness. And then we're at breakfast. We're, you know, in the Marine Corps, you dump your own dishes, and you, you know. And I, I asked one of the airmen, I'm like, where do we put our trays? He's like, oh, you just leave it. We'll come clear the oh, table wow. for you. I was like, get out of here. Like they had omelets made to order. Wow. My childhood, you got crazy. some scrambled eggs, and that's what you had your choice of scrambled eggs or. Some bacon, and you didn't know omelets made to order at the Marine Corps Channel. Yeah, my my joke was always that you know I always had a hook into the division commanding general's office. I always knew an NCO there. And what I'd do is find out what chow hall the general was eating in that day because they won't let just anybody cook for the general. And so you were guaranteed to get good chow. Oh, I hope you shared that information. That's some good inside information right there. Well, you know, the the E4 Mafia, or for you guys, the Lance Corporal Underground, we have ways of communicating <laughs> with each other. Well, see, that's that was always the difference. Um, I know in you know in Marine Corps, E4 and above, you're NCO. Um, and I know it's right. the same in the Army, but it's like corporals and above, didn't we didn't go on working parties. Um, we didn't do any of the menial tasks. The Lance Corporals and below, we would be in charge of them. So when we were on ship, they would have on reps, which is where they would resupply the ships out at sea. Mm -hmm. And for the Navy, they, they would call for all uh, Navy, Naval personnel, E6 and below, report to the flight deck for on reps. And then they would say all Marine Corps personnel, E3 and below. So <laughs> we didn't have to do all that. I always thought, man, that's kind of... Because the E6, the Navy is a petty officer first class, right. and they still got to work. When well, the Marine Corps, you're a staff sergeant. You don't work anymore. Everybody else works for you. So, That's right. I always thought that was strange, but I guess everybody's different. I guess we should get back on topic. We're sitting here reminiscing two old vets. All of our episodes always go back to some military um, topic. I love it, though. Oh, my goodness. Good times. Oh, it was. I owe everything to it. That's for sure. Um, so yeah, we, we, you know, we wanted to, uh, we had originally met up in the, um, underground podcast Facebook page, um, which I just recently found and, uh, come to find out that's a, a very good page. Um, if you're a, a young podcaster like myself, mm. um, um, find out a lot, good, a lot of good information and also contact, you know, get networking with other yeah. people that are podcasting too. So it gives you opportunity to 
um, you know, kind of spread your podcast around and have people on and, you know, go on their podcast and right exposure yeah Yeah, it's just a really good really good page but that's why how we got in touch with each other and there goes the dog barking right on cue um so you know i there was a you wasn't the original poster but another poster had said that they were um they were promoting their podcast and um as a religious podcast and um you know they said that we don't take ourselves too serious blah 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 and i was like well hey look you know i'd like to have you on my podcast interview and you had responded and I was like, yeah, let's do it, uh, you know. Yeah, happy to do it. Thank you guys for having me on. I appreciate it. Oh, absolutely. Thank you. Um, so I guess we'll just jump right into it. Um, you know, as as I told you, um, you know, full disclosure, um, I wanted to, wanted to let you know, you know, that I was an atheist, um, but I wasn't having you on the podcast to, like, you know, like a gotcha kind of thing or sure. anything Debate, like that. Yeah. It was genuine, um, want, you know, want to get your side on things and just ask questions. Um, so I guess we'll start. Um, you know, the first question, in your religion, what, what are the fundamental aspects that, that shape you and your religion? Well, so I, I think that probably the best place for me to start that would be to say that just kind of as a a preface to almost every answer that I make is that when, when I'm talking about religion or when I'm answering questions about religion, uh, I'm not ever thinking of anything like a sort of generic theism, um, or, or a sort of God in general situation. So when I talk about religion, I'm thinking specifically of and answering specifically about, um, Christian theism, particularly, or, or Trinitarian theism, you might say, um, so for us, the most fundamental aspect and, and really the most unique aspect of Christianity as well is the Trinity. And so it's it's most fundamental in that historically denying the Trinity immediately puts you outside of the, the boundaries of, of Orthodox Christianity. Um, and most unique in the fact that Christianity is the only Trinitarian faith. And so that sets Christianity apart from every other religion or or really any other school of thought that exists. Okay. So uh, I'm going to ask you a question. I'm kind of ignorant on this. Um, sure. I grew up uh, a Catholic. That's my family okay. was Catholic. We grew up um, in the Catholic church. And so, you know, I remember going to mass. I went to a Catholic school. Um, mm. What are the, the, the primary differences between Catholicism or a Catholic church and a Presbyterian church? Oh, wow. Uh, there are a lot of differences. Are there, there. really? Um, <laughs> So, um, okay, so here's how I would answer that. There's there's kind of two ways to approach it. One is to say that I belong to a a what we would call an old school Presbyterian church. That's actually a, a technical name that has to do with some events in Presbyterian church history back in the 1830s. Okay. Uh, there are some Presbyterians out there, for example, uh, the Presbyterian Church USA, that are very different from the end of the, the Presbyterian world that I'm in. So I can only kind of answer from that perspective. Um, But the main issues that you're going to find are going to be on the questions of justification. Um, How is it that man is right with God? Mm -hmm. Um, You're going to find major differences in worship. Uh, How are we to worship? Uh, What are the the elements of worship? We're going to have differences on the sacraments. So in the the Roman fellowship, you're going to find seven sacraments. In the the Reformed or Protestant world that I'm in, you're only going to find three. And so 
that's kind of the big picture differences. Well, I heard you speak to the Trinity. I'm assuming you're referring to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost? Yes, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So, uh, so Orthodox Christianity same... with a small O, not with a big O, not our Eastern Orthodox friends right. in Russia and Syria and places like that. Um, so not speaking specifically of them, although they do together with us believe this, is that there is one God who has eternally existed in three persons. And so there's not three gods, there's one God. Uh, Father, Son, Holy Spirit are the three persons, and they all equally partake of the single essence of the Godhead. Okay, okay. So, but there's no, like, y'all don't follow the Pope. Oh, no. Okay. No, no. None of, um, none of the um, saints or... No, no. Okay. Um, so on, on the basis of what we see, particularly in the New Testament, there there really isn't any room for a pope historically. Mm -hmm. And the, the presence of the pope can really only be traced back to, in the form that you and I would understand it now, can really only be traced back to about 500 AD, um, where the Bishop of Rome begins to have primacy over the other bishops in the Christian world. Uh, prior to that, what you saw was elders, uh, as the, the primary teaching office, and then deacons as those that are there for material assistance and that sort of thing. And so the, the distinction that the, the Roman communion tends to make between bishop, archbishop, elder, you know, priest or pastor isn't present in the New Testament. As a matter of fact, Paul uses all three words, all three of the Greek words that uh, are, are usually used there. Um, so elder, uh, bishop, and uh, presbyter to describe one office, and I believe it's Acts chapter 18, but off the top of my head, I'm not 100% certain that that's the correct location. Okay, so you, do, do does the Presbyterian Church utilize the same Bible as the Catholic Church, or...? Um, so it, for the most part, yes, we have an ongoing uh, and long-running dispute with the Roman Communion about the Apocrypha, and so those are the books like... Um, you know, Maccabees and Bell and the Dragon and some of the others that we would say that those are not uh, either historic nor authentic, so they don't properly belong to the canon of Scripture. And so when we, we talk about the canon of Scripture, we're talking about those books that we recognize as being inspired by God himself. And so there's a, a long-running dispute between we and our uh, Roman friends on that particular subject. Okay. Oh, yeah. And, and also, is uh, the Gospel of Thomas included in the Apocrypha as well? It's not. That okay. is, um, it, it properly belongs to some of the Gnostic writings okay. uh, that can really only be traced back to about the second or third century. Oh. There are folks out there that would argue that, that Thomas is earlier than that, but we don't have any evidence for that. And so... Um, for that reason, yeah, neither neither we nor the Roman communion uh, would would agree that the the Gospel of Thomas is inspired or belongs to the Apocrypha. Both the, the Roman communion and the Protestant world reject the Gospel of Thomas as being authentic. Okay, so that's in, that's Gnostic, you said? Yes. Okay, I looked into that a little bit. It's very confusing to me. Um. Yeah, it's confusing for a lot of people, so don't feel like you're alone there. <laughs> okay. So did, did you grow up in a, a Presbyterian household? Is that how you came about your religion? No, I, I grew up in a Southern Baptist household. Okay. Um, but uh, as I got older, I, uh, I actually wound up attending a, a Lutheran church in Charlotte, uh, actually in a little suburb of Charlotte called Pineville. And um, that, was, that was not a very good time in my life for multiple reasons. 
that I won't get into, but it, it was a, a rough few years. And in becoming friends with that particular Lutheran minister, um, he and I got to talking theology and those sorts of things, and, and they identified some gifts for teaching and preaching and that sort of thing in me, and so they started training me for ministry. And I was reading a lot of uh, dead Presbyterian theologians, um, and so it, by way of imbibing them and trying to compare what they were teaching with Scripture, I gradually came to Presbyterian convictions. So, oh, wow. so the Presbyterian religion, I heard you referred back to like 18—how um, how old is the Presbyterian religion, and how did it divulge out of, say, Christianity? Uh, so sure. So if if you're looking at the history of the church, um, you you have the earliest Christian communities in the the first and second centuries A.D., and then eventually that develops into what we now recognize as Roman Catholicism. Now, again, I would argue that that what existed prior to 500 or so A.D. Uh, doesn't bear any resemblance to modern Roman Catholicism, and so my my Roman Catholic friends would dispute me on that. But that's the that's the place that I land. And then in 1517, Martin Luther nails his uh, famous 95 theses to the door of the church house in Wittenberg, Germany, which sparks the Protestant Reformation. Um, and from the Protestant Reformation, there are several. Um, there are several sort of streams that flow out of that river. Um, on the European continent, the, the, the particular stream that I belong to is the Reformed Church. Uh, in, Pres in Scotland, it's referred to as the Presbyterian Church. So we believe exactly the same thing. The difference is name in name is simply a difference in location. Um, and so the, the Reformed churches really do go back basically to the very beginning of the Protestant Reformation because Luther wasn't the only reformer. Uh, there were other guys that were out there that were engaged in similar work, like Ulrich Zwingli and Martin Luther, um, also Martin Butzer, uh, William Farrell. There are a number of figures that are contemporaneous with each, with each other that are engaged in church reform. Um, it was a little bit later at a, a, a meeting at a place called Margsburg, uh, or, or pardon me, the Marsburg Colloquy, where the— um, the Reformed and the Lutherans sort of parted ways. We have some minor disagreements with our Lutheran friends about the nature of baptism and that sort of thing. Um, but on the whole, we agree on, let's say, 95% of uh, our doctrine. And so the, the, the differences between us are, are fairly minor, but they were major enough to cause a split, if that makes sense. Okay, so basically it started with, with if I'm listening correctly, with Martin Luther. Yeah, and then the Reformed would trace their genealogy back to actually several people that were contemporaries of Luther. Mm -hmm. So we would look to guys like William Farrell, John Calvin, uh, Martin Butzer, Ulrich Zwingli, those men. And so if, if I remember my history correctly, from the, the bit we read about it, he, he nailed it to a church door? Yeah, so that gets turned into this really dramatic moment, but the, the piece that nobody <laughs> ever really the, the piece that nobody ever really talks about is that Wittenberg was a university town, okay. and Luther was a professor at the University I of Wittenberg, and so he probably didn't use a hammer and nails; it was probably glued. <laughs> uh, and second, the church house door was a little bit like the the cork board that you find in a university hallway. Mm. Yeah. 
And so this was where you posted information about, you know, whatever was going on. And the 95 theses that Luther posted were uh, topics for debate among the uh, theology faculty at the University of Wittenberg. And it just kind of exploded from there. Well, what church was it that he had an issue with? It was the Catholic. Yeah, well, he was a he was a Catholic monk. Okay. Uh, he he belonged to the uh, Augustinian uh, monastic order, and um, it, at that particular time period, you had this Roman Catholic priest named Johann Tetzel, who was going around selling indulgences, and he had this little saying that he used when he sold them, saying, uh, "When a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs," and uh, Luther saw that as uh, pretty egregious that they were basically fleecing the people of the church uh, for a practice that he saw no foundation for in scripture. And so in some ways that's kind of what kicks off the reformation, but it really does snowball from that point. Yeah. We've actually talked about that in a a past podcast when we were discussing religion in the Catholic church in particular, um, how they used Mm. to um, back in the way back, they used to sell, you, if if you were rich, you could buy your way into heaven, oh, right. basically. Yeah. Well, you could you could at least buy your way into less time in purgatory. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> okay. you could uh, make a donation to the church, right? and the yeah. pope would be like, "All right, you're right. moving out." Come yeah. On yeah, we're we're gonna give you seven years off your sentence for <laughs> <Yeah>. good behavior. <laughs> That's so crazy right. how that works right. out. Right. Man. Okay. So very interesting. How did it get to America? Well, Presbyterianism goes all the way back to the the earliest days of the United States. So uh, when we think of, you know, early American history in the colonies, we think of the pilgrims who landed in Plymouth Rock. And then you have the Puritans that are that are there in Massachusetts. Um, the the southern colonies, for the most part, were uh, populated by the Scots-Irish. Um, and they tend to be very strongly Presbyterian historically. And so there's also some French influence um, in, in the, the eastern seaboard. And those uh, particular French settlers belonged to the uh, Reformed Church in France. So they would be my French cousins, you might say, um, that were part of the, the Huguenot Church there. They had been uh, run out of France during a, a fairly significant massacre that went on there. Um but that was being engaged in by the French king. Um, and so the, the, the Presbyterian and Reformed faith comes here that way. And so historically, they've really been two centers of gravity for the Reformed and Presbyterian churches. It's been Philadelphia and Pennsylvania and then Charlotte in North Carolina. And interestingly, when the, when the American Revolution kicks off, I cannot think of the man's name, but he was a member of, of parliament uh, in the U.K., that was writing to a friend and said that the American colonies have run off with a Presbyterian parson. (laughs) And so Presbyterianism was actually a a major factor in some of what was going on, because historically, if you go back to Scotland in the, say the 1660s ish, you have a rather famous Presbyterian minister and professor of theology named Samuel Rutherford that wrote a book called Lex Rex. It's uh, Latin for the law is king. And so it was his um, broadside, you might say, against the idea that the king is law. And so Lex Rex was a, was a significant influence on 
uh, some of American political thinking for a while before the American Revolution. Mm -hmm. So the the British tended to see uh, Presbyterianism at the uh, base of the American Revolution, which I think is hysterical. Were there any founding father or people that he consider founding fathers that you know of that were Presbyterian? Sure. The the first one that comes to mind is John Witherspoon. Never heard of so, him. So John Witherspoon was, um, if I remember correctly, he was one of the the earlier presidents of Harvard. Or pardon me, no, of Princeton. He was at Princeton. Um so yeah, there there are there are a number of of Presbyterians that are lurking in the background there. Wow, <laughs> they, not, they don't teach you that in American history. Well, we we do a horrible job of teaching teaching American history as it is. Yeah. So okay. I, I, you said you're. I guess you're in what's considered seminary. Uh, yeah. So I've I've done uh, some seminary uh, education at Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary it's in Taylor, South Carolina. Okay. And so how long is, is that? Do you like what's the, the steps you have to go through before you get a, a church? Um, so uh, for, for the vast majority of Presbyterian and Reformed churches, you have to do a divinity degree before they will ordain you. And depending on the seminary you go to, the divinity program is usually three years. Uh, at Greenville, it's four. Um, and of course, then that also assumes that you're taking classes full time mm -hmm. and that sort of thing. So you have to do a number of classes. So you, you have to, you have to take it, Again, this is in my end of the world. I cannot speak for every other seminary in the country. Um, but in the conservative end of the Presbyterian reformed world, you have to do multiple years of Greek, multiple years of Hebrew. You study systematic theology, old and new Testament, uh, ethics. I mean, there's a, there's a gamut of, of areas that you're educated in. No Latin. Um, you know, at, at some schools, yes. So uh, at Greenville, they do offer Latin, and I have been—I uh, was fortunate enough that I had already had some Latin under my belt before seminary. So currently, I'm actually um, translating some of John Flavel's um, collected writings, and there's a good bit of Latin in the footnotes. Hmm. And uh, I thought my Latin was pretty good until I had to engage in <laughs> translating from Flavel oh. and was rapidly disabused of that notion. <laughs> so I, I know you mentioned that you were married, so I'm assuming that Presbyterian priests or I don't, are they ca called priests? Just pastors. Pastors. Okay. okay. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, they can be married, have children. Yes. Unlike yes. Catholic priests. Yes, who, uh, yeah, who take a vow of celibacy when they're ordained, whereas we do not. Okay. Um, I, I, I couldn't do what I do without my wife. So I'm, I'm grateful yeah, that I'm not I, stuck I, in yeah, a position never, of having to take a vow of celibacy. I mean, I, 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 I have a theory on why that came about in the Catholic Church, um, but I never really understood why. Yeah, I have some would, theories of my own there, too, but I, I, don't, I, I, I couldn't prove them. To right. keep, for the church to keep the wealth. Yeah, well, yeah, and it's a way for that. That's actually one of my suspicions that it's a, a way for the church to not have to pay to support the wife of one of their yeah. priests after he passes away or, or that sort of thing. Yeah. So it's a way of keeping costs down. Yes, uh, but again, yeah. I'm, I'm, that's just my opinion. I'm sure that there are other folks out there that could offer a better historical answer for that than I could. That's just what I always thought. I know it's not PC probably to say that, but oh, well, such is life. Um, yep. Do y'all have female um, pastors? Not in my end of the Presbyterian and Reformed world, although okay. the PCUSA and some other Presbyterian churches do. Okay. Yeah, I um, yeah, I was um, raised in the Episcopal religion and went to okay. Episcopal church, and now 
they have women. Yeah, they who, have yeah. female. Um, what they call ministers and elders and pastors. Right, yeah. right. Yes, um, and then also we. Um, what I'm used to with that. That's really all that I know, though. Um, the we would um, say the Nicene Creed and, and the, um, Apostles, the Apostles Creed. Creed. Is that something that the Presbyterian Church? Yeah. So about? those are, those are, those creeds belong to what we would call like the ecumenical councils and ecumenical creeds. And so those are creeds that you will find in every historic and Orthodox Christian church. So whether it's your, your capital O Orthodox in, okay. uh, the, you know, Russia, Syria, uh, Northern Africa, whether it's the Roman communion or whether it's a, a Protestant church that adheres to Trinitarian orthodoxy and the historic creeds, you'll find the Chalcedonian creed, the Nicene creed, and the Apostles creed as, as the three creeds that we all agree on. Okay, I did not know that. Um, what about communion? Um, so there's a <laughs> yeah, you guys are hitting some of the more some of the more difficult questions between us and the Roman guys. Um, so <laughs> in in the Roman communion, they take the position that in uh, the mass that when the bread and wine is offered uh, and the priest uh, pronounces the the blessing on that bread and wine, that what happens is is transubstantiation, and so the the bread and the wine become literally the body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Right. Um, we do not believe that in the Presbyterian and Reformed world, uh, nor do any of the the Christians that would belong to the period of the or, or the outgrowth of the Reformation. Um, so, what we see happening in the um, in the Lord's table as a language that we use for it is that when the uh, bread and the wine are presented and offered, that first this is a a memorial meal. That is one aspect of it. So uh, in the words of of Paul in 1 Corinthians, when he talks about the, the institution of the Lord's table, he says that in doing these things, we remember the Lord's death until he comes. So there's a memorial aspect of it. And then we also recognize that Christ's promise is that he is going to be with his people. And so we believe that Christ is spiritually present Present when the Lord's table is offered, but that he is not physically present. So okay. that's one of our areas of disagreement with our with our Roman friends. Okay. Yeah, I remember being a child and going to communion and yeah. like being freaked out about that because I was like, I don't want right. to eat somebody's flesh or drink somebody's blood. Oh, yeah. And then you yeah. all drink out of the same. Yeah. I was like, <laughs> I don't, I don't know these people. I don't want to do that. Yeah, yeah. Like, why are we doing this? Right. Yep. So what do you think is the most unique unique aspect of Presbyterian religion? Um, so in Christianity as a whole, I would say that it's the Trinity. Um, and so that's, that is really where I would go. So okay. it's, it's the one thing that Christianity has in common across all uh, denominations and across all particular beliefs, uh, no matter what they may be, we agree on the Trinity, and that really is the most unique thing. Okay. Do you? I know you said you you had children. How old are your children? I don't have children. Actually, you don't have children. I thought I thought you mm -hmm. said you did. No, we talked about our. We talked about our bad children. Right. Okay. No, no, no children here. So. Well, one of the things I've noticed, um, in about public schools is that yeah. the removal of religion, right, um, from I have a school. Personal experience with, but that. it's it's particular religion that gets removed from the school, which is Christianity. Right. right. And right. Um, 
my one of my children brought home a, a school lesson a middle school uh, where they were being taught the tenets of islam right but a deeper you, dive into right them. not yeah. just like um you know these ancient peoples believed in the islamic faith it was more right. like yeah. they were teaching you the the three pillars, the five pillars of islam yeah, the and the shahada islam. and that's all of right. that that's right and so i took and there was the one God or something. It was, yes, oh, it, yeah. was it was a lot. And I was like, yeah. wait a minute. Yeah. So you they were they were teaching can't. them probably based on the Shahada, which is the Islamic confession of faith. That's uh La ilaha illallah, Ashhaduna Muhammadan Rasulallah. There is one God, Allah, and Muhammad is his slave mm-hmm. and yes. messenger. Yes, yes. That's exactly what it That's was. It. Mm-hmm. And so when I contacted the school about it, they were like, Oh, well, you know, this is part of the state curriculum and they're just learning about um, this is what public this school. ancient culture's mm-hmm. religious beliefs were. I was like, well, hold up. I said, it's a little bit more than that. I said, we're getting in, you're teaching them. Um, Doctrine. Re- yes, right. exactly. That's right. And I yeah. was like, why is it that, you know, you can't pray at a football game or pray it in the mornings at school, but you can send this home with my child and tell them they have to learn about Islam. Right. So what is your, your feelings on that as far as, Christianity being taboo in school, but, um, you know, it's PC to teach about other religions like Islam. Right. And if you get upset about it, you're, you're labeled yeah. as an Islamophobe. Right. Or a bigot or any, right, number, right, right. Yeah, any other number of things. Um, so there, in my estimation, there are two ways to kind of approach that. One would be to say that, uh, I am personally of the opinion that religion of any sort should not be part of the instruction that children receive in public school to start with. Mm-hmm. Uh, first, because I think it uh, usurps the the proper role of the family and of the church in teaching the child, uh, you know, its community and its family's religious commitments. And second, I don't want children to be fed misinformation about mm-hmm. any religion. I mean, much, much less my own. Right. And so I don't trust the public government run school system not to screw it up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. Um, it, it was it, it was a, a big mess, and they eventually they gave her an alt an um, they changed the curriculum basically. Right, gave right. her an alternate assignment yeah. of some uh, sort. Well, they changed the whole for everyone, and they had me wow. approve it. They sent a copy of it. They weren't aware uh, um, until we brought it to their attention how deep the dive was right. into and, it, and like which I was told astounding. Them, I said, Look, I don't have a problem with religion or my, my children learning about other cultures. I said, mm-hmm. but it, it, it's going beyond that. We're not just learning that right. these ancient peoples were this religion. Um, right. Like, and and like if a child is receiving a classical form of education, I think that's a different that that's a different scenario entirely. Yeah. So if you're getting a classical education and you're being educated in the foundations of Western civilization, then one of the books that you're going to need to read as a part of that education is going to be the Bible, mm-hmm. um, as well as reading things like. Um, you know, Dante's Divine Comedy or reading uh, Augustine's City of God or reading Locke and Kant and Shakespeare and those other things, because those are intimately part of the Western civilization that you and I have inherited. But that's a world of difference from teaching children doctrine. Right. I agree. Yeah, I just I don't understand why it's okay. But I was told that it was part of the common core. Yes. Right. uh, Teaching. So. Yeah, again, it just it goes back to me to to the whole issue of, you know, I think we ask the public school system to be everything to everybody um, and it can't be. Yeah. So it, the, it, a public school cannot possibly make 
Christian parents, non-religious parents, whether they're agnostic or atheist, uh, Islamic parents, they can't make all of these people happy. We're asking them to do too much. And so in my estimation, the, the safest thing to do is just say, look, Teach your kids reading, writing, and arithmetic. In an ideal world, I'd want every child in the country to get a classical education. Um, but that's my own conviction. Mm-hmm. And and that comes from the fact that I think we've done a really good job of teaching children what to think, but we haven't given them the tools for them to understand how, how to, to think. think. Yes. And classical education does give you that. Um but at the end of the day, I just don't trust the public school system to actual, to accurately teach any religious faith. Right. And so I think they don't have any business doing it. And especially uh, Islam. Not that I don't have a problem with Islam, but if I was going to be religious, I don't think I would be uh, Islamic. Islamic. I yeah. just I don't I don't see that. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. Especially, I mean, that's a whole nother podcast as far as their views on on modern right. society and women and mm-hmm. oh, I, yeah you wrote a strongly worded letter it was yeah very well we go down a rabbit hole on that one right. oh goodness but yeah um so yeah we had to deal with that um wow so as far as religion goes do you see religion as a contributing factor to the all the conflict that we have going on let's say in the middle east um or is it the lack thereof um, and I would say that I don't think that's an either or question. Okay. Um, I think it's both. Okay. And so it depends on where you look. And so if you're looking at the Middle East, for example, yes, absolutely. Religion is a contributing factor to the conflicts that we see going on there. Mm-hmm. But if you move away from the Middle East and you were to look at China, for example, then I would say in that case, what you have is uh, a lack of religion that's causing the conflict because you have Christians and others in China that aren't free to practice their faith. I mean, we've seen that very recently mm-hmm. where uh, uh, ministers and, and elders from the Latter Rain Church, uh, which is a Protestant church that's in China, have recently been imprisoned for months because they refused to bow the knee to the communist government there. Wow. And so there, there is this this history on the side where, where you would find your communist governments. So, for example, the, the USSR beginning in 1917, North Korea, Vietnam, China, Cuba, and other places that is deeply hostile to any form of religion. And effectively, what you have in those places is state-enforced atheism. And then you have places like uh, you know, Saudi Arabia, Lebanon, Syria, Iran, Iraq, any of the stands mm-hmm. uh, where you have state-enforced you know, Islam. And so in, it, it's always going to depend on what area of the world you're looking at. Right. Yeah, and it's something I, I didn't know when I went, I went to Iraq in 2005. Mm-hmm. And I was very surprised to see a Catholic church in Baghdad. Yeah, that was probably the Chalcedonian Catholics. Um, and, oh. and they are almost uh, non-existent in the Middle East now because of ISIS and, mm-hmm. and some other things yeah. that have gone on there. And that's, in my estimation, whatever my disagreements with them may be at the level of doctrine, I find that incredibly sad that an entire community that has existed there for 2,000 years is almost now non-existent. Right, yeah. and, that, and I was told that that church was always... Um, that those be- people basically had, you know, to live in fear. Oh, mm-hmm. yeah. You know? Absolutely. Yeah, I bet. Was it a large church? Did it look yes, like a large? it did. I mean, it looked like uh, any other Catholic church that okay. you would see. I was, mm-hmm. and it was, um, oh, I forget the name of the place where we were staying, but it was uh, a hotel, the Al-Sadir. 
in Baghdad. Mm. That was the name of it. And right outside the walls of that um, hotel was that church. So that that was, I never would in a million years would have thought that that would be there. So um, Mm. it it was just very strange. Um, So in Iraq, you know, the the Muslims, they're, they're Shia and Sunni. Right. And so they've been fighting for thousands of years uh, because one believes that Muhammad said that this guy was going to be in charge of the church and the other group believes that he said that this guy was going to be in charge of the church. And that's right. It's, it's a difference between whether or not the, uh, the, the caliphate or the, the head of the Islamic um, community is, is going to be uh, or, or historically, whether it was going to be Ali, who was a, a son-in-law, I believe, of Muhammad. I'm sorry, my early Islamic history is a little lacking at the moment. Better than um, mine. And so that's where the, the, the phrase Shia comes from. It's mm-hmm. from the Arabic phrase Shi Ali, which is the oh. party of Ali. And then you have your Sunni uh, stream of Islam, which is the, the, which is the most predominant the, and numerically largest. Yes. So, so is that a, um, just an interpretation um, yeah, there's a lot that goes into that particular split, and I'm not entirely competent to talk yeah, about it. Yeah, I'm sure it's compl- it's very complicated. Well, the, one and, thing that I was, uh, I had never had any dealings with um, Muslims or the Islamic religion before I went mm-hmm. there, and we had our interpreters. And I was surprised to learn that they, that Jesus is in the Quran. He's a He's considered a, um, a prophet. They mm-hmm. don't consider him the son of God, but he's a prophet. I didn't know. Um, right. Moses. I mean, they're mm-hmm. all in the Quran. I did not know that. Yep. And so I was like, are you, are you serious? Like, cause I mm-hmm. thought they were just like two separate things. Like I'd have right. never known that they believed in Jesus, in Jesus. Right. Is that, well, I, I have heard this, all those three, the three religions that came out of that area. Was, the Abrahamic um, religions. You're right. And the, are the first five books of the Bible, the, the Pentateuch? Am, am the, I on Pentateuch. the right? Pentateuch. Yes. Okay. Am I on the right track there? Is that, I guess that's where they all kind of converge. On the- uh, historically, yeah, we would trace um, the, the Christian faith uh, all the way back to, obviously, Adam and Genesis. But uh, we have, in, in Christian theology, we talk about the covenant of grace that's made with Abraham uh, in, in Genesis chapter 17. Um, and so Abraham is a significant figure in the Jewish faith and the Christian faith and in his deals and in the Islamic faith. Hmm. That's very interesting. Yeah. I really need some more education yeah. on this. Well, this <laughs> is a good, this is a good jumping off how point. much I don't know. Right. Mm. <laughs> yeah. And there's always more to learn. Right? Yeah. And, and as, as people, we always tend to, you uh, you know, if you're not a um, a theologian, you tend to cling to your religion, mm-hmm. and yeah. you don't bother yeah. to learn about other religions, right? Because to you, right. it's not important. Yeah. You know. I guess so. So, in your how, in in your religion, how do they? What is their stance like on um, like the modern day things that we have to deal with, like divorce and premarital sex and interracial marriages and teen pregnancy and, and those type of issues? Um, so where, where those issues are concerned, I mean, one of those things is not like the other. 
Um, right. So premarital sex, teen pregnancy and divorce belong really to a wholly different category from interracial marriage. And so there are people out there that would try to build a biblical case against interracial marriage, and they mm-hmm. do that based on what, in my estimation, is a perverted reading of various passages in the Old Testament, particularly out of you know, Nehemiah immediately comes to mind. And they do that by ignoring the context that those passages are found in. And so in the Old Testament, where you find these prohibitions against intermarriage with, for example, the people of Edom or with the Philistines, it, the racial character of the prohibition is not based on a, a ethnic Mm-hmm. Uh, category. It's based on a religious one. You're not mm-hmm. to marry people from the Philistines or the Edoms because they worship a different god. Ah. Ah. Um, and so that's a completely different uh, category than premarital sex or teen pregnancy or divorce. Right. And so where those three are concerned, um, in the conservative world of Reformed and Presbyterian uh the Reformed of Presbyterian faith, we would hold that premarital sex is sin, mm-hmm. uh, and that those who find themselves uh, pregnant outside of marriage should be encouraged to keep and raise those children, if at all possible, and that additionally to that, it's the duty of the church to help them do that in any way that we possibly can. Um, and, and so for that reason, we we really emphasize, you know, we are strongly pro-life. I am strongly pro-life. We just had the March for Life yesterday in Washington, D.C. I'm pro-life for a multiplicity of reasons, not least of which is the fact that I am adopted. And then where divorce is concerned, what we would say is that divorce is permitted in Scripture, but it's limited to only three uh, reasons. So one may divorce their spouse for adultery, for abandonment, and for abuse. And so we... to varying degrees, we would all be opposed to no-fault divorce, although historically, I think it would be very fair to say that Christians have not done a very good job of living up to the standards there. Right. So, so it, it, is it required to, like, say, uh, adultery? Do you have to prove adultery, or can it just be affirmed that they someone committed adultery against the other— um, so let's take a hypothetical scenario. Uh, Johnny and Susie are married. Uh, Susie's cheating on Johnny. Um, word of that reaches the, uh, the elders of the, the Presbyterian church. Uh, so we are then as elders going to sit down with Johnny and Susie and try and ascertain the truth of what's going on. And so if there is you know, truth to it, there's proof of it, then there are some things that that we're going to want to talk about. Um, Now, of course, you are not required to divorce in the case of adultery, and we would hope that there would be healing and restoration in that marriage and and in that relationship, but by the same token, divorce would be permitted in that situation. Okay. And or... Are there instances where a person can be excommunicated from the church? Uh, Yeah, there are. Um, So let's, again, take our our same, our previous example. You have Johnny and Susie. Mm -hmm. And for the sake of this example, let's say Johnny's the one who's cheating on Susie. Uh, The the church goes to Johnny. We've talked to him about this. We've made it very clear that this is sin um, and that, you know, this is scandalous as well, that there are people not just within the church, but outside the church that are talking about this. The fact that Johnny can't keep his pants zipped and be faithful to his wife. Um, and so he's going to be approached and say, you know, brother, you need to repent of this sin. You need to seek to walk in newness of life. 
And, you know, after encouraging him that way two or three times over a period of months, if ultimately if he refuses to be repentant, then he will be excommunicated. Mm. And that's for a number of reasons. One, because it's scandalous and it brings the church into disrepute. Mm -hmm. And second, because he is living and acting as an unbeliever. And so we need to make it very clear that he is not part of the church. And of course, that's done not out of meanness or cruelty or anything else. It's, It's done for the sake of hoping that we're going to see this person restored. And so biblically, when we talk about excommunication, where it appears in the New Testament, some of Paul's epistles, one of the things that's said is that you you turn these people over uh, and excommunicate them from the church and that you treat them like an unbeliever. And so how do you treat an unbeliever? Well, you treat them with kindness and you and you tell them about the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and pray and hope for their repentance and renewed faith. And so... Yeah, that that would be an area where if there was no repentance, that that excommunication becomes a very, very strong likelihood. Well, if Johnny repented, but um, he still wanted a divorce because he wanted to be with his new partner. We would not approve of the divorce, and if he went through with it, he would be excommunicated. Okay. Okay, and if he went through with it at some point in the future, they married, um, Mm -hmm. and he was repentive, but... Could he ask for permission to come back into the church with the new? Absolutely, school? yes, he could. Okay. okay. Um, so yeah, we would, would want to see evidence a... of that repentance, um, right, right. and so that you know, obviously the scenario will depend on what that evidence looks like. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, if if he is the offending party, if he is the adulterer, right. Then the the biblical standard again you go to First Corinthians chapter seven, uh, Matthew chapter nineteen, a number of other places. The standard is that the innocent party is the only one that is permitted to remarry because yeah. they didn't do anything wrong. Right. Right. They were faithful to their marriage vows, and so we're not going to punish the innocent for the sins of the guilty. But that guilty party is forbidden from remarriage biblically, and so we would stand by that and say, no, if you intend to leave your wife and marry the woman with whom you're having this adulterous affair, or you're going to leave your husband and marry the man with whom you're having this adulterous affair, then you will be put out of the church. Now, you're always welcome to come back, but that's going to be um, based on repentance and evidence of repentance. And so they would be removed as a church member. Now, of course, they're, they're always welcome to be present in the, the regular stated worship services of the church so that they can hear the word read and the gospel proclaimed. So it's not like we would have somebody standing at the door with a billy club <laughs> right, and are ready right. to run them off. You're if they not on the up. list. <laughs> right. So who would they, they go before? I'm assuming uh, uh, the elders. elders of the church. And yes, they it would be the session. That. Okay. The session. So, Who is that? So we, we would refer to that as the session. It's made up of, of ruling and teaching elders mm-hmm. uh, of that particular local body. And so those are men that have been set apart for that particular role to rule over the church, to try and guide it spiritually, uh, and to uh, teach the church doctrine, mm-hmm. preaching, that sort of thing. Now, are they necessarily literally elders or? <laughs> um, you know, that's that's uh, that's one of those things that it, we want these guys to be mature believers. That's the first thing. Okay. Um, and so obviously, you know, as well as I do, that you could run into a, a 60 year old on the street that's been a Christian for, you know, 40 years and and, and they don't know up from down. And you could run into a 20-year-old that is far better educated in Scripture and and better able to 
uh, use biblical wisdom in those areas. And so what we're looking for first and foremost is biblical maturity. Mm -hmm. Now in an ideal world, would I want those guys to be older guys? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Because I'd like for them to have as much life experience under their belt as possible. And are they ordained or can they just be parishioners? Uh, yeah, so they are per, they are parishioners. They have jobs that are outside of you know the the teaching function of the ministry. Mm-hmm. So at my church, we have a couple that are lawyers. We have one guy that you know works in a construction related field, so on and so forth. Um, but they are ordained in okay. that they are set apart to this particular office of elder. Did they went to seminary? I no, guess is my no. Question. We make a distinction between an, a, a ruling elder and a teaching elder. So a teaching elder is one that has been set apart by the church for the purpose of teaching and preaching the word and ministering the sacraments. A ruling elder is one who has been set apart to uh, sit on the session as one who offers okay. spiritual guidance and represents the congregation in those meetings. And so, for example, you know, a, a a pre a, a teaching elder is the guy who's going to be preaching and teaching Lord's Day after Lord's Day on Sunday. A ruling elder is not going to be doing that. Okay. Uh, a ruling elder has a job outside of the church, um, but the ruling elder is going to be there to assist the pastor as we we face you know sort of difficult decisions. Uh, it, down to some of the really minute stuff like, you know, okay, what's the church's budget? Where are we spending our money? Um, you know, what are we doing about these various issues within the church? They're there to act as a sort of council of advisors. And the way that Presbyterianism is structured is that the pastor and the ruling elders have an equal vote. And so if I'm the pastor of First Presbyterian Church and I have a, a session or a board of elders with 20 elders on it, my vote counts as one. Right. Okay. I get one vote. They all get one vote. And so that means that, you know, the pastor's not going to get his way all the time. Hmm. Oh, interesting. So. Very, it's very fascinating. And uh, what I love about very what democratic. You, right. I was just going to say that what, how you're explaining this. It's very structured. Mm-hmm. Love that. Uh, that is one of the unique aspects of Presbyterianism. And so it's that that goes all the way up the what you might say is sort of a chain of command. And so you have sessions that oversee individual churches that are made up of teaching and ruling elders. And then in a regional area, you have all of the uh, ruling and teaching elders there that will come together in a presbytery meeting. Um, And so that's all of the the ruling and teaching elders that are part of all of the Presbyterian churches in that particular regional area. And then you can go all the way up to the national uh, level where we have a general assembly that meets every year. And so that is, you know, open to all of the uh, ruling and teaching elders that are able to attend to help sit in, you know, the courts of the church to talk about church business. And so in a lot of ways, uh, historically, the American setup where we have local courts of justices and then you have state courts and district courts and federal courts and the Supreme Court is based on a Presbyterian understanding of how courts are supposed to operate. And so the way that that would look for us as Presbyterians is to say that, um, let's say Pastor Johnny is um, – at First Presbyterian Church, and he gets out of hand, right? He just becomes a heavy-handed tyrant, and he needs to be, you know, put in line. Well, his elders can draw him back into line, and if, wow. you know, he's not willing to listen to them, then it goes up to the presbytery, and the presbytery will tell him, you need to get your stuff together. Mm-hmm. And if he doesn't, then the presbytery can excommunicate him. 
And then if if that was done wrongly, let's say that the, the presbytery acted outside of its normal powers and, and acted in a way that violates our book of church order, then Pastor Johnny can appeal that to the judicial commission at General Assembly. And the entire church or, or representatives of the entire church will sit in judgment on that case. And so there are checks and balances within the Presbyterian system that are meant to protect the pastor from the church and the church from the pastor. Sounds very much like a judicial. Yeah, I would. It is. It very much is. Your court of appeals, your state supreme court, your district Mm -hmm. courts, and just going up to the supreme court. That's uh, but like you said, I guess they set up that way on purpose. Oh sure. They did. That's fascinating. Hmm. I did not. I didn't know that. So, do you think that religion and morality go together, or can someone be moral without religion and or vice versa, or can someone be unmoral and still have religion? Um, so again, that's one of those that I would say isn't uh, isn't really an an either or question. Um, so I think that it, yes, religion and morality do sort of go hand in hand. And yes, someone can be a non-believer, an atheist, agnostic, whatever they may be, and be um, moral as a person. Now, I think that particularly where an atheistic worldview or an agnostic worldview uh, encounters a certain amount of trouble is whether or how you might say one can ground morality in a materialist or naturalistic worldview. Okay. What, when, so what do you mean? Can you expound on that? I don't know. Sure. So, um, so as a general rule, and again, I, I can only speak in generalities, right. those who are you know, atheistic are going to tend to be naturalists or materialists. And by that, what I mean is that everything that exists is matter in motion, right? Okay, yeah. Um, and so there is nothing beyond this matter in motion. And so one of the, the questions that you have to uh, kind of answer on a materialistic basis is how do you, how can you talk about moral laws in a materialist or naturalistic sense? Now, I, I know that there are some guys out there um, that are, that are in the, uh, atheistic sort of end of the world that have tried to um, argue for a, a naturalist or a materialist basis for laws of morality and that sort of thing. And and they tend to run sort of towards uh, Neoplatonism. And in my estimation, that's, it's not a very, um, it, it, it's, how would I say this? It's it's the answers that they provide in in my estimation are not terribly convincing. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, and, and that's one of the that's one of the issues that you kind of have to to think through. So. Yeah. Well, I kind of look at like the you know, if, <clears throat> for the Ten Commandments, so to speak. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's just basic. I think it's just basic morality. You know, don't kill people. Um, you know, don't steal people's stuff. Um, right. Yeah. Right. But then you also have the first table of the law, right? Which is the other part of the Ten Commandments, um, you know, which is you shall have no other gods before me. Mm-hmm. And right. so, you know, we, we tend to want to approach the Ten Commandments as though they are basic laws of morality, and they are. I certainly wouldn't dispute that. I mean, you're absolutely right. Don't take other people's stuff. Don't cheat on your spouse. Don't mm-hmm. kill people. Right. Uh, those sorts of things. But they are ultimately grounded in a particularly religious worldview. And so that goes back to kind of my 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 larger issue of of trying to ground laws of morality in a, a naturalistic or materialistic worldview. Okay, 
I got it. So. <laughs> See, you look at like yeah, tilted I'm, your yeah, head. I, mean, I, I understand it. <laughs> yeah. It's just, I don't know. I just kind of, I, I don't know how to expound upon that, but yeah. <laughs> okay. it's, well, it's, and it's a difficult question and it's one that we all kind of have to wrestle with. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So what makes, as far as uh, Presbyterian belief, what makes you think that th- that's correct? Like that's why, why aren't um, Muslims, why don't they have the right, right. religion? Right. So I have not found the non-Christian religions to be philosophically defensible because each of them are internally incoherent or, or really undermine human reason and experience. So, I mean, I can give you a couple of examples. So Hinduism, as an example, assumes that God or Brahman is the impersonal universal soul of this unchanging one of which all things are a part. And because of that particular outlook, Hinduism says that everything in terms of my normal experience of the world and thinking is maya or illusion because Everything in our experience and thinking presupposes distinctions. And at the ultimate level for Hinduism, there are no distinctions. But that is contrary to the most fundamental metaphysical fact is that there are distinctions. We see them every day. And then Hinduism responds to that by telling me that all of my thinking is illusory. It's just an illusion. And so in that way, it undermines the ability for someone to reason at all. Uh, another example there would be Islam, which argues that that Allah is radically one. So in Islam, that's called uh, Tawheed, and it insists that the Quran is the uncreated speech of Allah that has eternally existed. And so the words of the Quran share the attribute of Allah in that they're also eternal. They didn't come into being at a particular point in time. Now, certainly the Quran is a written document in Arabic on earth, has a history, and, and it didn't exist in that particular form, say, during the, the days of Moses or, or the days of Isaiah or Jesus. But for Sunni uh, Islamic orthodoxy, the Quran itself is uncreated. And so... Because of that, and precisely for that reason, I think that the Islamic conception of trans, of transcendence uh, leads to incoherence where it relates to the Quran. And so Islam teaches that Allah is one, he is transcendent, he is simple, he's not composed of parts. And so if that's the case, then how is it that this Allah is able to speak? Because the very act of speech is a participation in something that's plural, right? right. And so... If Allah is one, then on the basis of Islam's all reasoning, that which is one can only refer always and everywhere to itself if it is to remain one. But speaking requires plurality, right? It it requires uh, speaking and using a subject and a predicate and so on. And so for those reasons, you know, and and you could do that for basically every other religion in my estimation, I, I think that they, again, just render themselves internally incoherent or they end up undermining the preconditions for the intelligibility of human experience. So when that day comes, when judgment day comes, Mm -hmm. what happens to the people that are are Hindu, Muslim, Catholic, Jewish, Mm. or or don't believe in anything? 
So I would say that one, I want to make a a very, a very sharp distinction there. So I would recognize that there are Christians uh, within the Catholic communion. um, And so I I want to be very careful Mm -hmm. about that. I'm not anathematizing every individual Roman Catholic, Um, but where it comes down to those that are outside of the, the Christian faith, I believe that those who do not repent and believe the gospel face a future where they will know nothing of God's omnibenevolence, uh, but instead will know only his omnipotent wrath. And so the question really for the Christian isn't whether or not God's wrath is going to be poured out on sin. It absolutely is. The question is whether or not God's wrath will be poured out on Christ as the substitute of all of those who have been united to him by faith, or whether it will be poured out on those who have refused to repent and believe in the gospel. Okay. So if they... Um, let's... Um... Because Muslims believe in, in some of the Bible. Mm-hmm. You know, been... But they deny the most central aspects of the Bible, the Trinity, the deity oh. of Christ, okay. the fact that Christ is the only perfect redeemer that is available for mankind. And so those central areas are, are areas that are non-negotiable for the Christian faith. Right. So if, yeah. if, if they don't believe in Christ, that's, that's mm-hmm. for the lack of a better word, right. the nail in the coffin? For them? Yes, very much so. Okay. And they would say the same for me. Right. Uh, they would right. say that because yeah. I am one who uh, does not hold that Muhammad is the, the messenger of Allah that has been sent to all people, that I am going to be condemned mm-hmm. to Jamna, to hell fire for eternity. And so this, is, this, isn't, uh, this isn't news to them or to me. Right. right. And so Jews, same thing. They don't believe that yes. Christ was... Indeed. They Anyone don't who was found outside of the Christian yet. faith. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, man, I. So, if you know, I would think that God, you know, mm-hmm. you, you believe in God and He's, He made everything, mm-hmm. and He would condemn someone to hell, even though they believed in Him, but not just like one little, little thing. Mm-hmm. So I would say that that's not a little thing at all. Right. Well, I get that, I get that there's like going to be that, a difference but... of, of approach and opinion there right. between you and I. Totally understand that. Yeah. But at Just the end of the day, that's not a minor thing at all. That. And so if, if God is uh, what I believe him to be, and, and I say that he is, and I, I have my reasons for that, right. then God is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. And this God has revealed himself to mankind, both in the natural order of things, as well as in special revelation, which is the, the, the Bible, the Old and New Testaments. And he has perfectly revealed how it is that man may glorify and enjoy him. And so where man has determined to go their own way, autonomy, right, uh, then they have decided to reject that. Right. And so a sin against an infinite God is infinitely heinous, and his holiness and justice demand a, a, a recompense for that sin. Okay. But didn't, did God not give you the ability to think other things so is it wouldn't that kind of like is that what you struggle with right yeah like like, like, like I'm okay curious, so you're yeah. god you want me to mm-hmm. believe this why get some other mortal person to tell me like like let me get it from the horse's mouth 
right. so to speak. Oh, God. Right. That's, I understand that's what the, I the, the, with. the objection there, to, yeah, to which I would say you, you have the ability to get I it from the horse's I mouth. You can get with. it directly from God in Scripture. Yeah. 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 But then, I, then I'm just, you know, my mind, I'm looking at well, mm-hmm. who wrote this Scripture. Right. Like if some guy wrote, sat down and wrote some things down. <laughs> You're being very oversimplistic. No, but I'm like, like God didn't say, here, I just wrote this, read this. Like I have to take, but it comes down to faith, I guess, is, Mm -hmm. yeah, that's what I struggle with is the faith part. And that is the dividing line, you might say. Right. Um, and, And I would say that, you know, Peter in his first letter speaks of holy men of God who were moved by the Holy Spirit to write what they wrote. And so it's not simply that this is a a man who is writing this, although the man is involved, certainly their personality, their life experiences, all of those things are involved in what they write. But ultimately what they write is being guided and superintended by God himself in the form of the third person of the Trinity. Mm-hmm. And so we hear the voice of God through what he has inspired to be written. Do you, I know, I'm not going to say you, but I <laughs> often wonder that these men that wrote the the books of the Bible, sure, were they ever influenced by their own beliefs to maybe word it the way they wanted it to be worded, or um. So uh, on the basis of of my understanding of of inspiration and preservation and providence, they. They are filled with the Holy Spirit, mm-hmm. and it is the Holy Spirit himself that guides what they write. And so the, down to the very words that they choose, God is the one who is superintending what it is that they have produced. So you don't believe that maybe their own prejudices could have influenced? No. no? Okay. I don't. I get that. Um, so... I've done some research, like on, on no, because I didn't just wake up one day and it's like, oh, I don't believe in God anymore. Right. Well, that's rarely how it happens for anyone. Yeah, and and it, it's it's. I mean, I used to be religious. Um, right. I don't even. I, I don't think I can even tell you when it happened. Hmm. Um. How do you reckon? Like, do you think? Because if you look at some some stories in the Bible. They mm-hmm. seem to be taken from other stories that predate the Bible or uh, mm-hmm. other ancient religions. How, mm-hmm. can, how do you reconcile that with, you know, that did God speak to these other civilizations, you think, or other peoples? Right. Um, so what I would say there is that I, I believe that all of mankind by natural descent has come from Adam, who is the first human. And so it doesn't surprise me that you find stories similar uh, Mm -hmm. to the stories that we find in the Old Testament. So, for example, the Enuma Elish and its similarity to the uh, flood narrative in Genesis chapter 9. That doesn't surprise me at all. And so what I would say is that what we find in those is corruptions of the original revelation that is found in Scripture. And so, yes, we might have... um, in the case of the Enuma Elish, we might have that baked clay tablet that's older mm-hmm. than the uh, parchment that we have for the Old Testament, for example. But I don't think that proves that the story itself is older. That only means that that particular stone is older. 
Does that make sense? Yeah, that's a very good point. Yeah, well, I never did, thought about how that. How could the stone be well, older it, than the, the story that it... That no, 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 written? I'm saying that Just, the physical stone is older than the physical papyrus that we have as far as the uh, documentary evidence. And so you know as well as I do, paper breaks down over time. Right. Right. And so it's okay. entirely possible that there are, or at least were copies of the Torah or the Pentateuch that are older than that particular uh, stella, that stone uh, where we find the Enuma Elish recorded, but they simply haven't survived. Right. So do, do you believe that, that the stories in the Bible are literal or are they... I do indeed. Okay, so like the flood, you like the whole mm -hmm. world flooded. Yeah, I, I hold to a, a, a okay. worldwide flood. Okay, okay. and the, um, um, creation also. Yes, creation uh, ex nihilo, that is creation from nothing, uh, that God has created everything by the word of his power, and that in six days, and all very good. Okay. Okay. How, how do you reconcile your religious beliefs and scientific fact? Hmm, that's a great question. So the, the question there, the, the issue really is, uh, how does uh, you know, science or, or religion uh, commingle, you might say. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I would say that at the end of the day, uh, I don't believe that science and religion have any conflict at all, nor do I believe that science and Christianity do specifically. I believe that Christianity and Christianity alone provides a philosophically adequate account for the university, for the universality and the invariance of induction or more popularly the laws of nature. And so I don't see a conflict between science and Christianity. So I think that the reason that people are able to do science is because they are assuming the fruits of the Christian mm -hmm. worldview when they do it. Well, what about creationism, creationism versus um, Right, creationism evolution. versus evolution, uh, or any other number of viewpoints. Right. Um, and so to that, I would say this. So... One of the things that, that I, I always go to when we talk about this subject mm -hmm. is the fact that I think that, if for lack of a better way to put it, everyone that I encounter day in and day out, no matter what their individual profession of faith may be, uh, whether they claim to be atheist or agnostic or Christian, uh, ultimately, that these people uh, know God. Because as mm -hmm. we find in Romans chapter 1, Paul says that God is continually making himself known persuasively to all men so that men do not have an excuse for their rejection of his existence. That isn't to say that all men confess this God. Uh, certainly not all of them are going to own up to him as their heavenly father. Not all people are going to submit to him. Some continue to, to have their, their rationalization, you might say, for why they don't believe in him. But ultimately, there are people in this world that continue to use laws of logic, morality, and science, and they have a worldview that clashes with that. And yet, they don't do anything to resolve that contradiction. And so, almost 50 years ago now, there was a doctoral dissertation that was written at the University of South Southern California. Mm -hmm. It was titled, A Conditional Resolution to the Apparent Paradox of Self-Deception. And so the author of that, of that dissertation really demonstrates that there are some people who know the truth, and yet they work very hard to convince themselves that it's not true. Now, of course, 
atheists and those who believe in other religions think that that's exactly what Christians are doing. And I recognize that, and, and I recognize that we'd have to talk about the evidence for and against self-deception, right. which would probably take about four hours. <laughs> um, I don't but, think we'd have any listeners after that. Yeah. Um, but what I would say is that self-deception is real. It's a real phenomenon. It does happen to people. Yeah. People can know the truth and work very hard to, uh, to use the language that Paul uses in Romans chapter 1 to suppress the truth in unrighteousness in order to convince themselves that there is no God or that there is some other God that isn't the one that's revealed himself in the Old and New Testament. And so my question that I always go back to in this scenario with, with folks that I know and I have some, some really great friends who are atheists that I love mm-hmm. dearly is always to go back to this, this problem of universal, invariant, absolute laws existing in a material universe. Because the the incoherence and the inconsistency of that, I think, is really the sticking point. And so, you know, are are there people that are out there that would say, yes, we have, you know, all of this evidence for evolution, to which I would say, prove it. Um, so, for example, probably the the most well known. Uh, advocate for evolution of the past 50 years was Stephen Jay Gould. And when he wrote his paper on uh, punctuated equilibria, one of the things that he mentions in the very beginning of that paper is that he doesn't hold to evolution because it's a high level scientific theory that he has empirical evidence for, mm-hmm. um, which is shocking when you, when you look at it. Um, and so that one of the issues, and, and I say this all the time, is not to say that there aren't great scientists out there that hold to these things. The problem is that they're scientists, and they've never dealt with the questions of the philosophy of science. And mm-hmm. that's where the issues lie. Yeah. Okay, so I guess my next question <laughs> would be, because <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm trying to educate myself here. Maybe I can be turned i don't know yeah. maybe i'm looking for answers maybe right. that's why i'm asking absolutely. you absolutely i would think um so what about um because you said that you take the bible literally mm-hmm. so what is the bible says the earth is like four thousand years old right well again there's an ongoing dispute there okay. so there are folks that would hold to a very young earth uh so say that the earth is about six thousand years old mm-hmm. uh there are other folks that we would refer to as being old earth that would say that the earth is much older than that so there is an intramural dispute among christians about the specific okay. age of the earth so you know that's one that you know i i'm Personally, I'm a fairly young Earth guy. I'm not dogmatic that the Earth has to be 6,000 years old. Um, so, I mean, if you if you believe that the, the universe is billions of years old, even if you think the Earth is only a million years old, that's still a pretty young Earth. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, again, I'm not personally dogmatic about the age of the Earth, though I know that there are others that are. And what I would say is that the Earth is young-ish. Um, and so, like, people say, okay, well, what about, you know, geological evidence or those sorts of things. I'm not a geologist, but I would point out the fact that we have an extraordinary geological record of major flooding, uh, particularly in the Pacific Northwest of the U.S. is where you see some of the best evidence for that in places like the the scab lands that are Mm -hmm. found around Coeur d'Alene, Idaho and and those areas. Right. And so, you know, you you have these massive glacial erratics that are just strewn across that landscape. But science would Um, tell you that was because of melting ice caps, 
You know, right. And, and the standard, that is ice. the standard position. And right. the, the, that's from melting ice caps and from the bursting of an ice dam that was in, yeah. in southern Canada. And that, that came from flooding that happened, you know, really thousands of floods that happened over a very long period of time. But once you start digging into some of the science there, what you discover is that thousands of small floods could not have moved those erratics. Um I wish I had my notes in front of me because I've actually got the name of the geologist that did the original research in that area. And he made that argument very strongly. And it was only at the end of his life that they finally moved him away from that. Uh, Or pardon me, it was only in the middle of his life that they finally moved him away from that. And then towards the end of his life, scientific consensus came back around to his point of view that it had to have been one large flood. Mm -hmm. Uh, And he was awarded... um, some sort of medal for it. I really wish I could think of this guy's okay. name. I'm going to uh, Harlan Brents. That's it. It's Harlan oh, okay. Brents. Okay. Um, it was one And large... basically he said that the reason that I have triumphed is that all of my enemies are now dead. <laughs> oh. <laughs> but it was one large flood that radically flooded the earth, like in a very short period of time or over... Yes, extremely. Hmm. Yeah. Um... So, and, and I recognize that the evidence for that makes, makes sense to me and that I find them right. persuasive from within a Christian worldview, but I also recognize that there are folks that don't find them persuasive based on the worldview that they particularly hold. And so, I'm getting back to the Bible again, you believe that Adam and Eve populated the earth, literally, just yes, the two of them? Yes, I do. How does that work? At some point, <laughs> incest is happening. Right. Um, and again, not something that I would deny. Um, but I would point out that like, if you look at my family tree, mm-hmm. but I got some folks in my family tree that were real fertile myrtles. <laughs> um, so, you know, I mean, people talk about, you know, how the a good example would be the Puritans. Everybody talks about how the Puritans were so hung up sexually and, you know, yeah. oh my gosh, they just, you know, had this terrible view of sexuality. Like, well, you know, for people that had an average of six to 12 kids right. per marriage, I'd say they couldn't have been all that hung up. Right. It's amazing that two people could populate billions. Well, get, keep in mind, we're a long way downrange from those first two people. That is true. Why do we so, all look so different? Why, why yeah. do you have different races if we all came from one race of people? You know, I, I don't know that I have a good answer for that. Those are things um, that we do know that, or we do say that. Uh, you know, there are there are certainly physical differences that we see between the races, mm-hmm. um, but ultimately we are genetically human. Right, right, yeah. right. And so there's not that much difference when you get down to the DNA level. Yeah. And I'm so I have as, far I'm... more in common with uh, someone oh, who doesn't yeah. look like me than Absolutely. I do with my dog. Sure. Although I wish I was as nice as my dog is sometimes. Right. I just wonder, so. I mean, because the, the physical characteristics are, are, are strikingly different. Between... Right. Well, they're even strikingly different within a particular race. Right. So I, I, you can't. I mean, I don't know how you would. Never mind. I just yeah. don't understand the, the wide. You can well, have I mean, both of those things. You can have religion, yes. and you can have different races. I, I, I can hold those. No, two I, thoughts I, I in understand. My head. And, yeah. and I'm not saying that it's not a difficulty. Yeah. Trying to yeah. reconcile this stuff in my brain. Oh, I mm-hmm. So, you believe the Earth is flat around? Oh, I believe it's round. <laughs> okay. I, I can get uh, with you on that one. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, it's it's funny. One of my uh, one of my former professors at the University of South Carolina in Lancaster is uh, Dr. Danny Faulkner, uh, and he belongs to the Institute for Creation Research. He's a brilliant guy, um, and he has been engaged in some 
awesome arguments with the flat earth guys that I'm just like, mm. you know? I feel, I almost feel bad for the flat earth guys when they, when they tangle with Danny, because they have uh, walked into an intellectual battle unarmed. Well, you know, part of their argument is the Bible on that. Yeah, I, I do. And I, I also think that the deeper issue that they have there is that they don't have the first clue how to engage in, uh, what we might call a, a, a rigorous hermeneutic or a rigorous process of interpretation. Okay. And so that we have metaphorical language that's found all through scripture. And so, for example, um, you know, when you, when you go to various places in the Psalms or when you go to various places, particularly in the book of revelation at the end of the Bible, symbolism is being used very heavily in those places. And so you interpret a, a book according to its genre. Right. So you and I both know that you don't interpret poetry exactly the same way that you interpret a letter from your mother. Yeah. Right. There, there right. are two different processes that are happening there. And so what happens with your flat earth guys is that they tend to go to poetic language and interpret it literally when it's not meant to be interpreted literally. So how do you make that determination? Like, how do you like say you uh, creationism is literal when some might right. see it as metaphorical? Right. And so that's one, that's an area where you go back to the question of the biblical languages. And so there are m markers, for lack of a better way to put it, that help you tell the difference between prose and poetry. And so, for example, with prose, you see the normal use. And so we're just using Hebrew as an example. You see the normal use of the Vav conversive, which is used throughout prose writings. You don't see that used uh, as a normal use throughout the poetic passages of Scripture, places in Psalms, Proverbs. Uh, also found in other areas like the Song of Solomon. And so there are ways linguistically to identify the differences. Right. That's something that you'd have to study and you'd have to yeah. know. Is, yeah. Is, is, and that's one of the that reasons that it's so important for ministers to go to seminaries where they require them to study the biblical languages. Right. Mm -hmm. Wouldn't that be left? I have to believe that it's left open to interpretation, right? Because the Bible is, the Old Testament anyway, is translated from the Hebrew Bible, if I'm not mistaken. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. Yes, it is. It's translated it from was... Hebrew, and there's a small portion that's in Aramaic that's found in right. Daniel, and then the New Testament is interpreted from Common Greek or Koine Greek. Well, aren't there are even biblical scholars that, that disagree over translation of some words. Yeah, certainly there are, but on the on the whole, there's remarkable agreement on the majority of cases. And where those guys disagree on the translation of particular terms, then I would simply say, you know what, let's get those two guys together in a room and let them hash it out and see if they can't come to a conclusion. Yeah, cause and the other thing that you have to deal with, too, when you're dealing with any sort of translation is the issue of semantic range. Mm -hmm. And so you can have one word that's used in a variety of ways. Right. And so context ultimately determines how that word is being used. And so, again, this is something that you and I engage in in English all the time, and we simply don't think about it, yeah. right? So think of, like, how you and I use the word with. Uh, I can say, I ate ice cream with a spoon, or I can say, I ate my ice cream with a friend. Well, right. the word with is functioning in two very different ways there. I didn't dip my friend in the ice cream right. and lick, lick ice cream off of it. Right. I would hope not. Right. Yeah, I'm you know, not that kind of Presbyterian. So, <laughs> that's a good way to put that. Okay, yeah. So, so yeah, so, I mean, again, that's the reason that knowing the languages is so important. Right. Okay, well, I mean, I still have a lot more questions, but I'm not going to, I know I'm probably bombarding. <laughs> My wife is shaking her head over there. <laughs> no, no, no. I understand. Hey, you know what, though? I mean, as part of the offer was that we could do an episode swap. So, 
when when we can work out another date, let's do this again and we'll do it on my show and we can talk for another hour, hour and a half. I, that'd be great. Yeah, I would love that. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. I do want to do that. Thank um, you. All right. Well, let's make it happen, man. Okay. Well, thank you so much for um, coming on our show. I've learned so much. You give me a lot to process. I love it. Yeah. I appreciate you guys being willing to let me come on and talk about something that I that I really love. So yeah. Yeah, I appreciate you coming on, and I hope I didn't um, upset you any. I'm not trying oh, not to be all. antagonistic. I truly no. have right. these questions, and it's very rare that you get uh, an opportunity to to speak with someone that can you know answer your questions clarify, intelligently. Right. right. And not just right, well, like what, I say, I, I really, uh, I really do appreciate you guys having me on, and I'm not offended. It's, it's very hard for anyone to hurt my feelings. I have very, very thick skin. <laughs> All right. Well, um, I'm gonna go ahead and. Sign oh wait, up. let's um, um, plug your podcast. Oh yeah, yeah, duh. Yeah. Okay. So you, uh, if you're plugging the podcast, it's titled "The True Presbyterian." You can find it on Transistor.fm if you're looking for the website. Um, you can also find me obviously anywhere that you get your, your, um, podcast from. So I'm on Apple podcasts. I'm in Spotify, all of that stuff, pod, uh, oh, pocket casts across the board. All right. That's us for another PM. Fuck your mother. You've been listening to the Louisiana Saturday Night Podcast. Join us next time. But in the meantime, hit us up on Twitter at LSN Podcast. And find us on Facebook at Louisiana Saturday Night Podcast. Every night until further notice. Go! Okay, bye now. Goodbye.